Good morning, Ecclesia. The vanity of wisdom, Ecclesia one, or Ecclesiastes 1.12 to the second chapter, verse 26. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from my I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. 
For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, it was never your intention that any of us have a meaningless life. No, you created this world and everything in it as a manifestation of your glory and for our use and enjoyment when we live our lives based on you and your word. You are Elohim, our sovereign God. By you and through you, we come to meaning and knowledge, success and wisdom. When we toil or laugh, seek and acquire, pursue and achieve in you, we find meaning and pleasure. Without you, life is indeed a meaningless vapor. May we seek your face, your will, and your way so we can find satisfaction and enjoyment in this life and in the life to come. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Chris. It's quite a task. I was telling Greg, uh, I had COVID a few weeks ago, like a lot of people, and uh, I was like, the brain fog allows me not to be able to read. Like, I can speak clearly, hopefully, this morning, but uh, the, the brain fog does not allow me to read a text and be able to pronounce the words correctly. So I was a little bit concerned even when I got up and taught last week that I was going to stumble over my words the whole time. And so thank you for reading such a long passage, and hopefully we'll do it justice as we teach this morning. If you are 7 to 12 years old and going to be jumping in our kids' class this morning, Miss Amber is going to be 
taking that group right there. You're welcome to jump in. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And as a way of introduction, I'll just begin with a, a few announcements. Uh, the, the first thing is, if uh, you're not engaged or involved within one of our community groups, I would encourage you to jump in. Uh, we've created a discipleship guide to walk through Ecclesiastes. Uh, we began that this past week. Community groups are uh, an essential place of care. If you're like, I, I want a community that I can care for people. I want a community that I can be cared for. I want a community that I can be known. A community where we study the Bible, where we pray together. That's community groups. We would encourage you to jump in. And, uh, and that's an opportunity not to stare at the back of someone's head, but actually like see them face to face. We'd encourage you to do that. Um, equip groups uh, that we're going to be launching this spring. Uh, as you have capacity and space and want to press into some deeper areas of discipleship and equipping, uh, we have several different options. If uh, you look at these, uh, Friend of Sinners, A Course on Evangelism, Gospel-Centered Life, how the gospel applies not to just salvation but sanctification, everyday life, how we live a gospel-centered life. Um, and then Jesus continued the role of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit empowers us. Um, and, and so there's multiple different offerings of each of these at different times. We've tried to accommodate uh, a morning time and evening time and middle of the day time and online time. And so hopefully you're able to jump in one of those. Would encourage you to do so. Lastly, our mission here at Ecclesia is to see the Salt Lake Valley saturated with the good news of Jesus. And the way in which we attempt to accomplish that is that every man, woman, and child across this valley would experience the good news of Jesus in both word and deed. That it would be spoken and that we would be the hands of Jesus, that, that people would experience our serving nature. And, and so to do that, to accomplish that vision, requires three things. I joked with them because I said I have a sermon within my announcements three things that it requires. One, that we as the body of Christ, that we would serve. And so there's multiple opportunities for you to serve within Ecclesia uh, to really experience and help people experience the good news of Jesus. Uh, second of all, for you to give. Uh, it takes resources to be able to saturate the Salt Lake Valley with the good news of Jesus. And so you can give online via our app, give on, uh, at our giving boxes on the communion tables, or uh, give through the mail would encourage you to jump in and be partnered with us in that. And then lastly, I would say pray. Uh, the heavy work is not always through human endeavors. That's what we're going to learn this morning. It's not through our efforts. Uh, God is the one who, who can really do this work of saturation. God is the one who can help every single person in this valley experience the good news of Jesus. And so um, I would encourage you to pray and to partner with, even with our prayer team, get involved. So, Ecclesiastes. Last week, uh, we looked at the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes, 1 through uh, 11, and I hope that that was a catalyst for great conversation within your community groups. I know it was in ours. Uh, the, the big idea there is that Solomon, who we believe authored this book, tore down some of the, the, the illusions that we believe about the world. Some of those illusions are the pace of life uh, that we felt like we, we have forever and we realize maybe we don't. 
And so this idea of the, the pace of life, the profit of life, our perspective on life, and the purpose on life. And what today is, today is going to be a deeper dive into those 11 verses. And so what I love about teaching through books of the Bible is that each week, you're probably going to leave here. You're going to walk out with maybe more questions than what you came in with. And that's okay. That's what community groups are for. Hopefully, you're going to get an opportunity to be able to communicate and discuss and be able to wrestle through some of these things. Uh, but I want you to know, uh, as we jump in this, we try to find some natural breaks within the text uh, to have one like cohesive thought. And, and today, what we're, what we're going to find is, is that that natural break doesn't come for 32 verses later. And so we have a lot of ground to cover today, and there's probably going to be a lot that I'm not able to cover. And so if you're like, well, what about this? What about this? That's where community groups come in, and we would encourage you to uh, wrestle through that. Know that I cannot possibly teach. Uh, I mean, if I were to take a minute a verse, which we're going to walk through this verse by verse, uh, it's going to leave very little time uh, for me to give much uh, discussion outside of that. I say all of that. Wes, one of our pastors, sent us a text yesterday, and uh, it was just an encouragement. And, and it said, men, preach the word. Don't worry about dropping truth bombs. Don't try to make a splash. Don't try to go viral. Don't try to do the Holy Spirit's job. Be faithful. Trust the ordinary means of grace just preach the word. And here's the thing. I only got time to preach the word today. And so I want you to be here, open Bible, open app, whatever you use, reading these words, knowing that I'm not just making up what I'm saying. I want you wrestling with the text because when you leave here, you're probably not going to remember four points that Justin gave. But you're going to continually to have this word of God, and I want you to read through. Because if you're like me, when I heard those like 32 passages, verses read, you're kind of like, what in the world? How do I make sense out of this? And what if I were to tell you that in those 32 verses, it's like, this is like my life passage, this passage. And maybe some of you are like, man, you're kind of messed up, right? And, and that's okay. You can think that. But I find that like this passage has the capacity to change your life forever. It changes the way you look at life if you'll grasp this. And so you got to wrestle with the text. And I, and I hope I can do, do it justice because uh, I, I just really feel like this passage speaks of the very reason of why you're even here this morning and why you're sitting in that chair, why you got up, and why you do what you do. And that's Solomon's big idea that he wants to get to this morning. His big idea is, why do you do the things you do? Why are you here? Why do you go to work? Why do you pursue relationships? And so many of us, we, we spend life so stressed out on what we're doing, we don't actually know why we're doing it. We just do because we, we, we feel like there's so much I need to accomplish. There's so much I need to, to do. There's so much progress that needs to be made. And so we do, and we never actually stop and think and ask, why? Why do I do the things I do? And I would tell you maybe just an oversimplification, if I could just give you an answer, the answer 
for that question. The reason you do the things you do is because you are in a pursuit of happiness. You're in a pursuit of happiness. You're in a pursuit of meaning and significance, which leads to happiness. Now, you may say, hey, Justin, but there's things I do that I don't necessarily like. But ultimately, you do the things that you don't necessarily like for the reward and happiness that they'll bring. For example, I put the dishes in the dishwasher this morning. And you may be like, that does not sound like the pursuit of happiness, right? It is. Here's why. It's not that it makes me happy, but it makes my wife happy. And if my wife is happy, then I'm happy, all right? And every aspect of life is ultimately this pursuit of happiness. And so what Solomon is going to do here, Solomon's going to do a little experiment. Solomon is going to begin to try to grasp and understand and try to come to some reasoning behind, like, what is the purpose of life? Why do we do what we do? And how do we ultimately get to a place where we experience joy? And what if I just kind of told you out of the gates that God the Father wants that for you too? He's not a killjoy. That he actually is out for your enjoyment. Let's start. Verse 12. I, the preacher, Solomon, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. And so here's Solomon, and I'm going to just kind of read a little bit and speak a little bit. Solomon here, he's attempting to understand what is done under heaven. And so we talked about life under the sun. This is life as we see it now. And, and it's not, this isn't the life, this isn't all that we have. We know as believers in Jesus that there's life above the sun, life with God forever. And that's, that brings us joy even knowing that. But this is Solomon attempting to understand what's done under heaven. And if, and if anyone can do it, if anyone has the resources to do it, Solomon is the guy. It's like Solomon has unlimited time, unlimited wisdom, unlimited resources. And we see, even as we read last week in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29, it says, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. Okay, so 1 Kings 4, 29, this is where like Solomon is given wisdom. If there's anyone who can figure it out, what we're here to do and how we receive joy and lasting significance, happiness, meaning in life, Solomon is the guy to do that, okay? And so Solomon is asking the why. He's slowing down. He's reflecting. He's contemplating, why do I do what I do? Now, he tells us right after that in verse 13 what it led to. And so some of you are kind of like, that's kind of why I don't want to come. Like, that's why I don't want to hear Ecclesiastes. I don't want to hear it taught. I don't want to pursue wisdom. Why? Because he said, here's where it led. It led to unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. He's going, this pursuit of trying to understand life under the sun is unhappy business. He's going to go on and say, all throughout this text, if you read... It led to despair, it led to sorrow, and guess where else it led? It led to him to a point of going, I hate 
life. Now, some of you are going, I, I don't think, like, I, if you're a Christian, you probably shouldn't say that. You shouldn't say, I hate life. We're going we're to talk about that. But what he says is, it's not delightful. In fact, you know, the, he, he's going to say, this, this isn't fun. And, and I've heard from people, even as I've responded, that they're like, you know, like, Ecclesiastes to kick off the year, that seems kind of depressing. I don't know that I want to face some of those questions. I don't know what the, that I want to address some of those areas in my life. I don't know that I want to know why I do what I do. I may not like the answer. And because it's unhappy business that God has given the children of man. Verse 14. And so he said, I've seen it. I've seen everything that's done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. Striving after wind, trying to grasp wind, trying to feed on wind. Like you grab it and it, it's gone. And that's the whole description of what he's in, in all these experiments that he's about to begin and all these searching for meaning and significance and purpose and happiness. He, it's like he's like, I'm, I'm trying to grab, I'm trying to strive after the wind and you just can't grasp it. You can't hold it for very long. And he explains in verse 15 his experiment, like his experience with this world. I want you to read this. This is why some of us are frustrated right now. This is why some of us walk in this morning and you feel the weight, you feel the pain. You feel the death. You feel all of these aspects of, of life. And this is why. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. This is the reality of life under the sun. And, and this is Solomon in some ways like popping our balloon and, and, and given us some reality and perspective to life. And that statement right here, this little proverb that he drops in in verse 15, is enough to cause and, and move many of us to despair. To cause many of us to say, I hate life. You can't be straightened. It's twisted. The things that are lacking cannot be counted. It's talking about deficit. If you've ever been in a place where there's been deficit, maybe you're paying bills. You're counting up and you're looking at your bills and the money that you have in your bank account, it, it's not there. And you don't just go, huh? Ah. No, you count it again. Like you're counting what is lacking and you're like, it's just not there, it's just, and you're just frustrated. Can't be straightened. Here's what I would tell you. Tell me if I'm wrong. Maybe tell me after if I'm wrong. Every politician has told us opposite of this. Every politician has promised that what is crooked will be made straight. 
Solomon tells us, not in life under the sun. It won't be. It's not Pedro running, you know, in Napoleon Dynamite where it's like every politician like, we'll make all your, 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 your wildest dreams come true. Right? That's what everyone's promised. And that's why we're frustrated because we live as if what is broken should be made straight. And so we experience the things of this world and we hate and despise the thing of this world because we look around in our world and we're going, you know what, like this pandemic, it should be made straight. And you're like, well, Justin, like haven't we, we've gotten through pandemics before, right? And I go, yeah, only for another one to come. Only for another disease, only for another cancer, only for another health crisis. We haven't figured out a way to beat death. We haven't figured out a way to, to beat the political divisiveness. We haven't figured out a way to make our, e, our, our, our knees not ache as we get older. It's broken. And it causes sorrow. And the conclusion that he's driving to, and I think the conclusion that I want to help you maybe ask and answer this morning is, well, if it can't be made straight, then why am I trying? If nothing can be made straight, then why am I producing all of this effort? If it can't be made straight, then we should just jump in with the brokenness of the world. And he gets there. But I also want to turn your attention to maybe a question of, how was everything in the world made crooked in the first place? It wasn't always. In fact, in, in, in Genesis, when God created the world, he, he looked at it and said it was good. It was good. I would have you turn your attention to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 13. Now, I would say... There's many of you who probably don't want to believe this this morning, and out of fear of making someone responsible, we're going to wrestle with this, this verse. Ecclesiastes 7.13, consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. Oh, man, that's frustrating. The brokenness that we, we see... The, 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 the fact that it can't be made straight, the, the frustration, the thing that causes us to look at life and despair and have sorrow and hate, it says in this text that God is the one who made it crooked. And it's like, now, Justin, you're sounding like the weird preacher on you know, TBN who's saying, like, this is punishment from God. I'm not saying it's punishment. I'm saying he made it crooked out of his love. When we, we look at death and disease and the brokenness and pain, it was the result of sin. It's not like death slipped in the back door and God's like, oh man, like where did this come from? This, you know, death just came in and attacked. It's like death came. Death is here. Death is present. 
And God isn't caught off guard by it. It says, in the day of prosperity, the the text goes on, be joyful in the day of adversity. Consider, God has made one as well as the other. So that man may not found out anything that will be after him. And when when I read this text, I I look, and because I think a lot of times we look and we say, well, the coronavirus is is present in our culture right now, uh, and that's God's punishment on the world. And we know there's accounts in the Gospels where they say, you know, like, the Tower of Siloam fell on these people. Was it because of their sin? And he's like, no, it wasn't because of their sin. It's not out of punishment that things are made crooked. It's out of God's love. And here's how I would, would help you understand that. Why in the world would God make something crooked? Why in the world would it, would it be crooked? And we as his loved children we live in this world and we are experiencing that and it causes us to hate life. Why would God do that? And there's a book by Mark Sayers called Reappearing Church. And I found in it this just a brief description of, of when we experience the, the brokenness of the world, how God's partnership exists in that. And I'll, I'll have you follow along. It says, in this exhaustion and disorder, that's what we're experiencing, right? We see the hand of God's merciful judgment, which allows us to rest on nothing but his presence. It moves us to go, like, we need him. He has inserted, and I I love this phrase, a babel-like kill switch inside of human endeavors without him. Here's what it said. What, what, What Mark Sayers is saying is... It can't be made straight. He's created a Babel-like kill switch instead of all, in, inside of all human endeavors without him. Nothing and no one can truly advance a program of renewal without his presence. So the Tower of Babel, what are they doing? It's a human endeavor, attempting to do it without God. And so God, you know, the people of God are, are building this tower, and what does God do? A Babel-like kill switch, he destroys it. He scatters them. It can't be made straight. They can't do it. And this is what is is causing this this frustration, okay? And and here's what I would tell you. The Garden of Eden wasn't like this. We always say when we talk about the story of God and we go, imagine the way the world should be. And we said, imagine. And it's not crooked. It's not broken. It's, It's experiencing God. It's walking with God. It's union with God. It's fellowship with God. It's relationship with one another. It's companionship. It's fellowship. It's enjoying the fruit. It's enjoying everything that God has created. That's Eden. And that's not what we're experiencing. And when you don't experience that, it should move you to sorrow. It should move you to say, I hate life. And that's exactly how Solomon responded. Verse 16. We're moving right along. He said, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom, to know madness, to know folly. 
and I perceive that it, this also is striving after the wind. And here's how he responded. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrows. So what he's saying, these experiments, these tests, these pursuits gave him insight into how the world works. This wisdom gave him clarity. This wisdom caused sorrow. You ever heard ignorance is bliss? Solomon is saying the opposite. With the increase of wisdom comes the increase of sorrow. As he learned more about the brokenness of the world, he despaired. And here's what I would tell you this morning. Because I know there's a lot of people walking in, and they're tired. Like, the, the sorrow, the pain that he's experiencing, you know that firsthand. If you were honest, like you would, you would stand up. I've, I've heard it from you. I've received emails from you of going, I hate life. It's frustrating. It's painful. And it's in that moment, I want you to know, like, number one, you can lament where we are. It's not Eden. It's not the garden. It's not perfect union, perfect fellowship, perfect companionship, perfect fulfillment, perfect satisfaction. It's not that. We should lament what is broken. And that's not always where I want to live. But it's a place of of coming, of understanding the world. Maybe you ask the question, well, what's the point of life? He says over and over again, it's just vanity, it's vanity, it's vanity, it's striving after the wind. If there is no gain, and this is what he is kind of elaborating on, if there is no gain in this life, if there is no profit in this life, and life is so hard, then why live? And that's why you get all the way over, you, ju- you jump over to chapter 2, verse 17. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. And so this whole first section, if I could kind of give you a, a heading over it, it's like this was looking at life through wisdom. So I'm going to try to game life. I'm going to try to understand life. I'm going to try to figure out life. And he's like, ah, that didn't go so well. So you know what his second experiment is? His second experiment is, well, maybe rather than like gaming life and figuring out life, what if I can avoid life? What if I can escape life? What if I can fill life with other things so I don't have to think about life? We do that. And so what he begins here in verse 17, it says he applied his heart to know wisdom and what else? And to know madness and folly. He's going to perceive that now. And so how does he do that? What does he do? Well, he pursues the pleasures of the world. Chapter 2, verse 1. He said, I said in my heart, come now, I'm going to test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. 
We read on down into verse 10. It says, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was the reward. And so between chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 10, Solomon mentions nine areas where he is seeking to pursue happiness, pleasure, and sense of gain out of this world. Now, some of these may sound archaic to us, but I want you to hear me. Like, these are the same areas that we look to. These are the same areas that we're seeking to find happiness, pleasure, and sense of gain. First one, chapter 2, verse 2. It says, come now, I'll test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself, but behold, this is also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, what use of it? And it's like, I'm just going to find a way to like laugh, enjoy, comedy. Let's just put like, you know, just, just some, some, some sense of laughter and joy. And laughter does something good for the body. It's good to laugh. But like just trying to laugh at something like doesn't actually... Fix what's wrong. So laughter doesn't get there. Chapter 2, verse 3. He says he pursues alcohol. He gets wine. And he says he doesn't lose his mind in that. It's, it doesn't give over to a sense of drunkenness. He keeps himself controlled in that. But it's like I've always heard people say, well, I'm going to try to drown my sorrows. But then I found out my sorrows know how to swim. <laughs> right? And so alcohol didn't solve the problem. Art, chapter 2, verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks. I planted them all kinds of fruit trees. I made pools from which to water the forests of the growing trees. We see all of this. Art, work, nature. We all run to these things. Verse 7 and 8, he says, I bought. He's got more money than he knows what to do with. He's, he can pursue the music. Like, we live in a day and age where we just kick on Spotify, and it's like, he didn't just kick on Spotify, he actually had the artist come to his house. I mean, he, it's like the greatest of, of all pleasures, sex, affirmation. You can write these down, you can go back and read all these. He pursued all of these. What's interesting is how closely tied, when you read back to building gardens, and fruit trees, one of, the, one of the Hebrew words in there is the word paradise. It's the same word that's used in chapter 2, verse 8 of Genesis. What's he doing? He's trying to rebuild Eden. He's trying to rebuild what once was. And what's crooked cannot be made straight. He's treasure hunting. What did he find at the end of it? Verse 10. It says, for my heart found pleasure. Oh, well, maybe he found it. Right? Like he, he found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward. But he's going to go on and say it's vanity. It's striving for the wind. It only lasts for a second. My son Jet was playing a video game this morning. He's like, oh, Dad, I'm going to get to this next level. I was like, awesome. When you get to that next level, is it going to make you happy? I just like popping his balloon, you know. And he's like, well, yeah, maybe, yeah. I was like, well, how long do you think that will last? Maybe a little while. I was like, well, then, well, 
what's he going to do? Well, I got to go beat an uncle up. I was like, yeah, it's like this constant pursuit. It's never gain. It's never like, look at this wind I have in my hands. I was able to grasp it. No, it's gone. It's just fleeting. There's no gain. There's no profit. Verse 11, 211. All of it was vanity and striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Verse 12, so I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. And he asked this question, for what can the man do who comes after the king? And he says, already what's, what's already been done. Here's what he's saying. I have done the most thorough search in the entire world to pursue happiness. And the man who comes after me, he can go and he can attempt all these experiments on his own and he's going to be left with the same result. It's striving after the wind. I've searched it all. And this is where we come to a very significant turning point in our lives. And this is where he comes to some conclusions. After we have searched wisdom, after we've searched through folly, after we've tried to stuff our life with all of these things and escape the things of life, he comes to some conclusions here in, in verse 12 through 16. And the conclusion he comes to is wisdom and folly kind of end up in the same place, but ultimately there's, there's still more gain in being wise than being foolish. He says both the person of wisdom and the fool, they both end up in the same place. They both die. He says in verse 17, he hates life because of it. When he dies, he has to leave everything that he has to the person after him. And he doesn't know if that person who comes after him is going to be wise or a fool. It's like, man, the frustration. We read in verse 23, the confessions of a workaholic right here. You ready? For all his days are full of sorrow. And his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is a vanity. Anybody been there? I've been there. Confessions of a workaholic. I, I mean, all of these human endeavors, I'm trying to make progress. I'm trying to, to, to find some gain in this world. And it frustrates me because there's so much brokenness. What's crooked cannot be made straight. I can't find significance, happiness, meaning, purpose. I can't find all of this. And whether it's a life of wisdom or whether it's a life of folly, we, we both die. We both end up in the same place. And I got to pass off everything that I supposedly have worked for off to the next person. And that next person, he may be a fool or he may be wise. And how's he going to receive it? And ultimately, at the end of this day, it's frustrating. And so he comes to, to some grips here. And he's, he's going to have to come to some conclusions going, how do we live? Why do we live? If we all die. If there's no gain, then what's the point? Someone said, what would we do if we knew if the shelves of our days were nearly empty and death was soon? You find out you got six months left to live. What do you do with those six months? That's what he's answering. The reformer Martin Luther said this, if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, 
I would still plant my apple tree. And you're like, why? Anybody? Anybody wrestle with that of going like, you knew you were going to die tomorrow and you still plant apple trees. Why? And here's what I would say. When we look at the world, he's pursuing the world, he's pursuing life, he's pursuing work, he's pursuing effort. All the human endeavor is out to gain something. But what if all of life, what if that's not the why? What if the why of our life, the reason we play in this game called life, is not out to have some gain or some reward or some some sense of profit, but it's actually something altogether different. Zach Eswine, who's a, a pastor and author, I felt like he described this in a way that that really made it come alive to me. And so I I want you to see, because it, it looks in this idea of going, well, if it's all folly and it's all like, why not live how you want to live? And like, if you can't beat them, join them kind of mentality. And if this world isn't out to gain, then like, why do I work? And I think he describes it. And then I'll get to the final point. He says this, imagine a basketball team made up of seven and eight-year-olds, and one team cheats, trips, trash talks, and pushes. Imagine that the referees are friends of the cheating team's coaches, and it becomes obvious that the referees are biased in favor of this cheating team. Now, imagine you're the coach of the opposing team. What do you tell your your players? You can tell them, hey, guys, you can quit. You can say, I hate this game. There's no point in trying because no matter what you do, we're not going to win. And you're going to get hurt in the process. Let's get out of here. Or you can tell them to return the same kind of behavior. You can say to your team, I hate this game. Since this is all unfair and no one seems to care, you do the same to them. You too need to go in. You need to cheat. You need to trip. You need to trash talk. You need to push. If the only way to get ahead is to break the rules so be it. The preacher looks at both options, Solomon. He fully understands what it means to hate how the game is being played, but when he looks at walking away, this leaves folly to win on the court. Folly then becomes the only game in town. Likewise, when he looks at joining in and fighting folly with folly, this too also only leaves folly on the court. Folly still remains the only game in town. So the preacher agrees on one hand, I hate this life, he admits, but this, to respond with this kind of hatred promotes dif- differs substantially from the other two. So he goes, I will oppose the life I hate with wisdom. He seems to say, not because I will win in this world, I, will likely, I likely will not but at least wisdom will remain on the court. At least folly will no longer 
be the only game in town. At least those who watch the game will have an alternative set in front of them. In essence, the preacher changes the purpose for playing the game. That was a key phrase for me. He changes the purpose of the why behind why he's playing. He calls us to question the motive by which we seek God in the world. For the preacher, we do not play to win or to advance or to gain for ourselves. We play because of God and because of what such a relationship with God establishes. Here's what he says in verse 24 and 25. And this is where he comes to a conclusion of the why behind life. And I hope this does in you what it does in me. It causes me to go this. (sighs) Deep breath. Deep breath. What if all of life was not about progress, but enjoying the gifts of God? What if all of life was not about treasure hunting, but enjoying the treasure giver? I think it's interesting, all the human effort, all the human endeavors all the the effort we put into this world to make the crooked straight, all the search for meaning, significance, happiness, all the joy, and what 24 and 25 tells us, God gives it. He gives it. All of our efforts... All of our work, all of our pursuits, all of our treasure hunting, in this passage, he changes the reason behind why we play. It says, the enjoyment of all these things comes from the hands of God, not from what you do. So, When I look at this, I go, the happiness I'm attempting to earn, the Father wants to give. But it's like we're over here spinning our wheels, working ourselves to death, trying to figure out how to gain it. And he's like, come back to Eden. You're, You're looking for the one tree when I've given you all these things to enjoy. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? You can't enjoy life apart from him. What I get to when I, when I read this, it's, it's about worship. It's like we can focus on all the things that are broken. We can focus on all the things that can be made straight. And we can attempt in all of our efforts to try to make them straight. But I don't work to make them straight. I work to be with my father. Because my father's business is to make it straight. 
He's the one who's going to make it straight. It's the passage, it's the, the quote by Mark Sayers that we said, it's about experiencing his presence. We work to experience his presence. We go to our jobs to experience his presence. We're moms and dads and, and brothers and sisters and family members, and we, we want to do that because in striving to be the best for one another, it's we're partnering with God the Father. And so it's not about gaining. It's not about trying to find some reward or some profit in this life. It's about just enjoying the process. I told you last week about just the the process of, of watching my mom die. And if... My mom, when she, she moved here and we began caring for her, uh, my mom was, was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. And when that diagnosis came, I would tell you that her response initially was, I hate life. I would say in that five-year period that we got to journey with her, the first three years of that life was a lot of sorrow. It was a lot of despair. There were numerous times I can remember sitting on my back porch and really her explaining to me, like, you don't understand. Of mourning the fact of what's, what's broken cannot be made straight. And, and there was a sense of just despair and loss and pain. But there was a turning point. My mom and I, we, we went to a, a doctor's appointment where she was offered the opportunity to go into a study at the University of Utah that would potentially help. It was in trial. And they invited her and said, you know, would you love to be a part of it? And in some ways, this would seem like, oh, this is our last attempt at this. But there was a cost. And the cost was that almost three to four days a week, we would have to take her to the U. We'd have to be there for all sorts of labs, all sorts of tests. And that would be our life. And there was a, a moment as my mom wrestled with that of going like, like that's, that's going to be our new normal in some ways. If, if we're going to do that, if we're going to pursue that, it's going to be a lot of like, we're going to be seeking to try to live, and what she realized that in that seeking to try to live, she really wouldn't be living. So there came a point where there was acceptance. There was a point of acceptance and acknowledging, and she's like, I don't want to do the study. I don't want to pursue this. There was a moment where, where she decided to come to grips with the reality of death that it comes for us all. And that for her, trying to figure out how to hold on to a few more years, potentially, maybe, possibly, wasn't how she was going to spend the last few years, whatever the Lord gave her. And I can tell you, as I watched those last two years, she began to live. The way my mom served us, the way my mom served our church, up until like just a few months until she was unable to, still serving in kids' ministry. And you're like, 
someone with that type of diagnosis, someone with that type of loss, like, why? It's because she experienced the joy of her father in that work and that labor. That was the gain. That was the reward. And so when I look at us and I, I look at our church and I, I look at us, like there, there should be a lament. There should be this sense of sorrow. There should be this sense of brokenness where we go, man, things aren't the way they, they should be. But there's coming a time where God is going to make all things broken. They will be made straight again. And in the meantime, God has called us to enjoy the partnership with him in whatever days we have left. I just look at this and I go, what do we have right now that we can just go, God, thank you. Like the Westminster Catechism, like it says, you know, what's the chief end of man? To enjoy, to, to worship God and enjoy him forever. And, and there's a sense of going like, that can never be taken from us. And right now, wherever you are, whatever you're facing, whatever you're experiencing, you can experience the joy and partnership of your Father. In the midst of brokenness, in the midst of pain, in the midst of everything that we're experiencing in this world, there is good. There is blessing. And he wants us to open our eyes and see that and enjoy it. So I want you to bow your head. I want you to close your eyes. And the worship team is going to come up and play. And I just want to ask you, like there's a lot. I, I, you read the news, you get depressed. You hear about wars. You hear about disease. You hear about pain. I read an article yesterday that like a group of monkeys headed to a CDC quarantine facility wrecked and all the monkeys broke loose. And you're like, it's a weird movie we live in, right? Like, this is broken. There's a lot to be, we're not in Eden. But the Bible tells us that not only is he making us new, but there's going to be a new creation. He's making all things new. All the pain, all the brokenness we experience, all the hurt, all the sorrow, all the despair, all the work, all the labor, we get to rest. And it doesn't necessarily have to begin when you die. It begins now. Like we can take a deep breath. I just think about my own life of so much of going like the, what I'm trying to grip and gain out of this world. Where I wanted our church to be seven years in. Where I wanted my kids to be. Where I wanted my family to be. Where I wanted to be. And you're disappointed with that. But what if that's not the why? What if the why is enjoyment? So I just go, what, what does it look like for you to enjoy the Father this morning? 
What does it look like for you to wake up tomorrow morning and go to work and join the Father? What does it look like, mom or dad, for you to come home at the end of a long day and have to pour yourself out for a family, but know that the Father is partnering with you in that? What does it look like for you to go to your job tomorrow, the job that maybe you're just like struggling through, but know that in the toil, God can give enjoyment because the Father is there with you. What does it look like for you to go to that doctor's appointment tomorrow to receive bad news, but know even in the midst of the bad news that God the Father is there with you and that even in that process, He'll give you enjoyment. This is a change of perspective. This is a change of why. And so, what we're going to do is we're going to sing. We're going to lament. We're going to say, I hate life. But my hope is, is that you wouldn't leave here this morning without knowing that enjoyment comes from the hands of God. He wants to give it to you. So if you're here this morning, we're going to stand, we're going to sing. If you're here this morning, you, you need prayer. Maybe you're in the place of going, I'm in despair. I can't rest at night. I can't sleep. Pam and Chris, they're going to be in the back. I'll be back there in the back. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to encourage you. We'd love to, to just encourage you with the good news of Jesus. For those of us who are here, I pray we'd sing our hearts out in the next few moments. All the joy in the world, God has it to give. That's good news. Father, I pray as we, we sing, as we respond, as Really, our, our souls are ministered to in the next few moments, Lord. I pray that you would, you would encourage us, Lord. Help us to know the why. Help us to, to really change the reason for why we're playing the game. Not playing to win. Playing to fellowship. So, Father, help us to experience your presence even now as we sing. Respond as we need to this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.